Welcome to Indo-Pacific Affairs, a podcast devoted to tackling the wicked problems facing policymakers, academicians, military leaders, and others in the Indo-Pacific region. Affiliated with Air University's Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs and the Air Command and Staff Colleges eSchool, the podcast features interviews with the top names in academia, government, and think tanks from around the region. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed or implied in this podcast are those of the participants and should not be construed as carrying the official sanction of the Department of Defense, Department of the Air Force, Air Education and Training Command, Air University, or other agencies or departments of the U.S. government or their international equivalents. Hello and welcome to the Air University Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs podcast. I am First Lieutenant Shaquille James. I am currently an ICBM launch officer, a member of the Language Enabled Airmen Program, and a host of the Air University Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs podcast. I am joined today by Lieutenant Colonel Z. Miller, who is an instructor at the Air University Global College of PME and also a host of the JIPA podcast. Today, we are joined by retired Army Colonel David Maxwell. David Maxwell is a retired Special Forces Colonel with 30 years of service in the U.S. Army, with 20 of those years being spent in the Asia-Pacific. He is currently a fellow at ICAS, the Institute for Korean American Studies, and is on the board of directors for numerous organizations, including the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, the International Council of Korean Studies, the Council of U.S.-Korean Security Studies, and the Special Operations Research Association, to name a few. He holds degrees from both the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, the School of Advanced Military Studies, as well as a degree in National Security Studies from the National War College. In addition, he also served as the Associate Director for the Security Studies Program at Georgetown University and is currently a Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Colonel Maxwell, it's a pleasure to have you with us here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Over the past few years, relations with North Korea have been all over the map. We've experienced Fire and Fury, Sunshine 2.0, the first ever meeting of the North Korean and U.S. heads of state, and much more. Yet, even with the ongoing pandemic, North Korea continues to test and develop new weapon systems and modernize its military. Given this, can you give us a strategic threat outlook on the Korean Peninsula? What does the North Korean threat look like today? Well, that's a great question. Uh, the um, you know the broad threat, of course, is you know we we focus on the number one being the nuclear threat. Uh, you know they may have anywhere between you know open source estimates are between forty and. Uh, you know, 40 or so nuclear weapons. Uh, they've tested an intercontinental ballistic missile capability. And of course, numerous short range, intermediate range, medium range uh, ballistic missiles, uh, as well as in recent years, uh, a number of cruise missile capabilities and 300 and 600 multiple rocket launch uh, systems, uh, you know, just to name a few. And then in the last year, they have demonstrated in their parades, uh, a number of advanced capabilities, everywhere from individual soldier equipment, from rifles and, and body armor to mechanized vehicles and, uh, and tanks. Now, how much of that has been fielded? Uh, it's difficult to say. Uh, we haven't seen evidence of widespread military modernization, but it goes to one of the most important things, uh, and that is the intent of the regime. And I think we have to keep in mind uh, that while we are negotiating, while we are concerned with the nuclear problem, they still demonstrate the intent to fight. That said, um, you know, their equipment is, uh, is Soviet or Russian based. Uh, much of it is obsolete. It is, uh, you know, it's very old. But again, we shouldn't be lulled into a sense of, of complacency either, because as Stalin said, you know, or Lenin actually uh, said, Quantity has a quality all its own. And with 1.2 million soldiers under arms, active duty, and 6 million uh, reserves, it has quite an extensive uh, military capability. But really what we have to, to ask ourselves, um, has North Korea and the Kim family regime 
given up its strategy that is really seven decades old, uh, which is really based on subversion, coercion, extortion, or blackmail diplomacy, uh, the use of threats, increased tensions and provocations to gain political and economic concessions. And ultimately, when the conditions are right or when Kim is, is existentially threatened, the use of force to achieve unification of the peninsula dominated by what I like to call the guerrilla dynasty and gulag state in order to ensure the survival of the mafia-like crime family cult known as the Kim family regime. And the second part of that we have to consider is in support of that strategy, uh, do we think that Kim Jong-un has abandoned the objective to split the ROC-US alliance, to drive a wedge in the ROC-US alliance for the purpose of getting US forces off the Korean Peninsula? So in short, has Kim given up his divide to conquer strategy, divide the alliance to conquer the ROC? And so that really is the threat I think we have to uh, have to consider in a nutshell. It is a conventional threat, it's a growing nuclear threat, and it's a political warfare threat based on uh, subversion, coercion, and extortion. All right, so you mentioned the sorts of threats that we face with North Korea. One of the threats you mentioned was their military threat. So a few years ago or several years ago, North Korea did test their latest ICBM, the Hwasong-15 ICBM. And later on, they didn't test this missile, but they showed off the bigger brother to the Hwasong-15, the so-called Hwasong-16, in a parade. And so given that North Korea already possesses ICBMs capable of striking the U.S. mainland, what is the strategic value of developing further weapons such as their cruise missile technology and the like? Well, again, uh, I think it's they're taking a holistic approach to warfighting. Uh, I think that uh, they want to be able to strike the homeland primarily for deterrence purposes, but but also, you know, I think we have to consider that they intend to use it. Uh, the other missiles, cruise missiles, they are developing a submarine launch ballistic missile, which, you know, could be their intent to develop what you know as a second strike capability. Uh, although I think their submarine forces is really, you know, it's difficult to to think that that would be an, you know, a, a a practical capability. But I think we see their intent to develop these weapons. But the other IRBMs, MRBMs, short range ballistic missiles, rockets are all to support warfighting. Uh, as well as, you know, their tests or provocations are considered provocations as well. And I think we should think back to 2019 uh, when they unveiled and, and tested the KN-23 and the, the uh, 300 and 600 millimeter uh, rocket systems. Uh, and Kim Jong-un said they were designed for the fat target. And well, the fat target could be where we have consolidated most of U.S. forces, Camp Humphreys, Osan Air Base, Kunsan Air Base, as well as Chongju Air Base, the ROC Air Base, where they, the, the South Koreans are bedding down the F-35, which is, of course, the most advanced aircraft in the world. So I, by developing these capabilities, you know, they certainly can attack those, those bases and, you know, which can be uh, part of their blackmail diplomacy, but it also gives them a warfighting capability because obviously uh, those locations are critical to uh, the defense of South Korea. So related to North Korean capability, sir, I have had the pleasure of being stationed in South Korea from 2007 to 2009, and again in 2015 to 2017. So wartime operational control authority transfer was scheduled a decade ago, but never happened. The U.S. and South Korean militaries are now on schedule for a transfer of OPCON in 2022. Do you think the ROC military is capable and ready to take OPCON? What are your thoughts on this topic? Especially since you worked as the J3 in CFC before, correct, sir? Yes, J3 in CFC, Chief of Staff at SOC Corps, J5 at SOC Corps, 2nd Infantry Division. I had actually had five tours in Korea, so uh, and I continue to work on Korea issues. I was in Korea when the whole OPCON transition process began. Uh, 2004 to 2006, um, and you know, and I've I've tracked the evolution over time. And as you know, when you were there, the OPCON transition process was really about dissolving the ROC US Combined Forces Command and establishing a Korean Warfighting Command on the ROC JCS and a new separate US Korea Command or CORCOM, uh, which would have been a supporting command, and the the relationship would have been supporting to supported with the US in support. 
Um, over time, you know, the commanders decided that the Rock US CFC is the best combined command we've ever developed and ever been part of. And uh, it really made no sense uh, to split the command uh, and to have separate warfighting commands. So the decision was made to keep the, um, the Rock US Combined Forces Command intact, call it a future Combined Forces Command. And ultimately, when OPCON transition occurs, it will be that a Korean general officer will command the Rock US CFC and the, the current structure will remain, which is really important because the, there, there really is no transfer of operational control. It's really a myth because the Rock US CFC answers to the military committee, which is made up of representatives of both countries' national command and military authorities. And the current commander, Commander uh, General LeCamera, you know, he will tell you, and every previous commander will tell you, they answer to both presidents equally as the commander of the ROC US CFC. US Forces Korea, of course, is a sub-unified command of Indo-PACOM, and the UN command answers to the US through the chairman of the USJCS uh, and uh, as the executive agent for the United Nations, for United Nations command uh, operations. Uh, so as the commander of ROC US Combined Forces Command, all the strategic guidance uh, and control comes through the military committee again, made up of representatives equally from uh, both countries. So in effect, right now, both countries equally own, co-own the Rock U.S. Combined Forces Command. And when we, we say that the OPCON transition process is complete, both countries will still own. And the fact is, U.S. forces do not have operational, the U.S. government does not have operational control of Korean forces. Again, the Combined Forces Command does. Uh, and yes, it is commanded by a U.S. general officer. But when it's a Korean general officer, the Korean government will not have operational control of U.S. forces. It will be the same command relationship. This is, you know, not well understood, I think, outside of, probably outside of Camp Humphreys <laughs> right now. And uh, uh, it's certainly not well understood in the public in, in Korea because they've always looked at this as a sovereignty issue. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the broad uh, aspect. Now, uh, we also transitioned from a timeline-based process to a conditions-based. Three big conditions are developing the command and control, developing missile defense, and a sufficient reduction in North Korea's nuclear capabilities. Those are the three big conditions. Uh, within that, though, there are probably about 150 mission essential tasks uh, that have been designated to meet the, the requirements for the OPCON transition. And we've got a process of initial operating capability full operational capability, and then full mission capability. And so the intent now, and agreed to at the 53rd security consultative meetings held earlier this month, that they will conduct now the full operational capability in the summer-fall exercise uh, that takes place annually. And that should, assuming the evaluation is, uh, is sufficient, uh, that should check the block for full operational capability. Still, full mission capability has to has to be evaluated, and that won't happen uh, before 2023. So there's still some time, but the, the, the process is based on conditions rather than a timeline designation. Now, all that said, you know, is the ROC capable of, of assuming operational control, you know, with a Korean general in charge? Well, I think that's really a no-brainer. Often, I've long worked for Korean generals in, uh, in the Special Operations Command, uh, it was always the Combined Unconventional Warfare Task Force was always commanded by a ROC three-star general, and uh, you know their general officers are very capable. But it is the combined command uh, that is made up of the staff officers from both countries that really make it work, and it is a capable command. I also think it's important to understand that we need, and it is in both South Korean and U.S. interest, to have a Korean general in charge of the ROC U.S. CFC. If there have to be operations that are conducted in North Korea, whether it's defending against a North Korean attack, followed up with a counterattack, uh, whether it is operations that are conducted as a result of internal instability and regime collapse, contingency operations. If allied military forces have to set foot in North Korea, they should be led by a Korean general. And this is important because uh, for two reasons. One is that for the long-term legitimacy of the ultimate end state on the Korean Peninsula, which will be a unified 
Republic of Korea or a United Republic of Korea, U-R-O-K or U-R-O-K, it, it is important that it is Koreans who provide the military support to the political process of unification, not uh, U.S. leaders. Now, the U.S. will support, of course, through the Combined Forces Command. The other reason is that uh, we do not want to have another Iraq and Afghanistan. And I will tell you that, that in my opinion, any operations conducted inside North Korea uh, by allied forces will be far more difficult and far more complex than what occurred in Iraq and Afghanistan. But what is most important is that we do not want to give the perception that it is the U.S. that is conducting occupation operations inside North Korea. And so, uh, again, because of political process that must take place, the ultimate end state, or as what Lieutenant General Jim Dubik would call the acceptable, durable political arrangement uh, that will serve U.S. and rock U.S. alliance interests, unless it is led by a Korean general officer, we will undermine the legitimacy uh, if we give any perception that we are an occupying force. Uh, and so that's why I believe it's really important that we achieve this process and that we have the future Rock US CFC led by a Korean general officer with all the same support that we provide uh, as part of the mutual defense treaty and part of the guiding document, strategic directive number two, terms of reference, uh, and the guidance that's given from the military committee. Colonel Maxwell, thank you very much for your explanation there. I think that that's a very good segue uh, into the next question. So you mentioned in your answer how the Combined Forces Command essentially answers to both presidents, specifically about the South Korean side of this, the South Korean government. As I'm sure you know, fairly recently, the South Korean government made a statement suggesting that both North and South Korea agree on a formal end to the Korean War, uh, at least, quote, in principle. Can you talk about the end of war declaration and what effect, if any, it would have on the security situation on the Korean Peninsula? Is such a declaration valuable? <laughs> it's a very controversial question right now. And first of all, let me state up front that I, and I think both of you, and I think every American and every Korean uh, want peace on the Korean Peninsula. You know, and we, you know, we're technically still in the state of war because the war was halted uh, by the Armistice Agreement in 1953, which only did four things. Uh, it, uh, you know, suspended hostilities, established the DMZ, established a mechanism for <clears throat> for managing the uh, uh, the division at the DMZ, uh, and it pledged both countries would not attack each other uh, across the DMZ. And the last thing that it did, it was uh, had a process for returning prisoners, which was actually the most difficult aspect of, of the negotiation for the armistice and why it took all, more than two years to uh, to complete. So uh, so that's what the armistice did. And it's a, just a temporary suspension uh, or cessation of hostilities. Now, paragraph 60 of the armistice says that, or it still says that within 90 days of the signing of the armistice, the, the leaders of the countries involved are supposed to come together to have a political solution of the Korea question. Of course, the Korea question is the unnatural division of the peninsula. Uh, they met a year later in Geneva, but uh, those talks went nowhere. And so uh, we still have a divided peninsula and we have a temporary suspension, uh, a seven decades temporary suspension of, uh, of hostilities. Now, President Moon has proposed the end of war declaration. He's not the first to do that. In fact, George W. Bush proposed it in 2004 or five. And that was actually part of the six party talks. Uh, it's not a new proposal. And many will say that really we're no longer in a state of war. There hasn't been a major attack since 1953, of course. Many hundreds of provocations, hundreds of skirmishes. Uh, we've had the crab wars and the naval, uh, the naval wars in the, uh, in, the, in the Northwest Islands and the West Sea. Of course, the sinking of the Chonun uh, uh, Rock Navy uh, frigate in, uh, in 2010, murdering 46 South Korean sailors. Uh, by a North Korean torpedo attack, but there has not been a major attack by the North, a resumption of full-scale hostility. And so people say that, well, technically the war is over. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of truth to, to be said. Now, one thing I didn't say in my, my, threat, uh, my threat overview for you is that that 1.2 million man active force is deployed in offensive positions, 70% of which are between the DMZ and Pyongyang. And so, as I said, we all want peace, 
but we also are concerned with the security of the Republic of Korea. And ending the war, uh, it sounds good, and I certainly support it. Of course, the Koreans will tell you it is only symbolic, it's not legally binding, because only a peace treaty uh, will become binding by international law. And that will take some time to, uh, to negotiate, of course. And that's a whole other story because both countries would have to change their constitution to actually recognize each other to enter into a peace treaty. But I'll leave that for another time. The problem with, with a, uh, the end of war declaration, though, is that, uh, and in fact, China, the United States, South Korea, and North Korea have all said they agree in principle. And of course, you know, you put that in air quotes, and I, I, will, I will also. Uh, and the, the problem is, though, uh, North Korea's strategy. And the, uh, you know, as I've said, I've written recently, uh, paper and words do not trump steel. And there's a lot of steel in those artillery tubes along the DMZ. And there is nothing about an, a, an end of war declaration that will enhance the security of the Republic of Korea. Now, while North Korean forces are postured for offensive operations, South Korean forces are postured for the defense. Five defensive belts north of Seoul and the Han River that are designed to defend against a North Korean attack. It is North Korea that has the hostile policy uh, and aggression towards the South. And, but uh, North Korea you know, it says that uh, uh, they won't negotiate until the United States ends its hostile policy. And many of the, the proponents of the end of war declaration, political factions, both in South Korea and the United States, believe that it is the United States and the presence of U.S. forces that are actually hindering uh, both denuclearization negotiations and the unification process. Uh, and so there are many, including, including Kim Jong-un, who want U.S. forces off the Korean peninsula. When, when Kim Jong-un talks about the hostile policy of the United States, he doesn't want a security guarantee. He doesn't want a piece of paper. He wants a significant action to demonstrate that we no longer have a hostile policy. And unfortunately, that significant action is an end to the ROC-US alliance, removal of US troops, and an end to extended deterrence and the nuclear umbrella over South Korea and Japan, uh, which of course will give him uh, a military advantage. Uh, and so that's what he seeks in the end of the hostile policy. Once we declare an end of the, of the Korean War, uh, it is likely that the political factions in both South Korea and the United States will seek to remove U.S. troops. The rationale being, we know we are no longer in a state of war. We can disband the United Nations Command and we can withdraw troops and save money. And so, so that is, of course, a very dangerous condition. Just as an aside, in 1997, when the highest ranking defector, Hwang Jong-yap, came to South Korea, one of the first questions we asked him was, North Korea has has invested all their resources in developing their military, uh, yet they have never attacked the South. Uh, why is that? And his answer was, of course, you know, looking at us like we had a, a unicorn growing out of our forehead, was that the presence of U.S. forces. Uh, he said that, he, that Kim Jong at the time, Kim Jong-il and then Kim Il-sung before him, knew that they could not win a war against South Korea if the United States supports it. And with our U.S. presence, our support was guaranteed. Uh, and so that's why they have a major objective to drive U.S. forces off the Korean Peninsula. Um, Hwang Jong-yap also said that he knows that uh, if, we, if North Korea attacks, they believe the United States will respond with nuclear weapons, uh, which interestingly uh, illustrates the importance of our declaratory policy but it also provides understanding of the rationale for why North Korea has pursued nuclear weapons since the 1950s. I think it's important that people remember that. They have been pursuing weapons since the end of the Korean War. Uh, through the 1950s, their first uh, nuclear reactor, experimental nuclear reactor from the Soviet Union was in 1962. They sent 250 scientists to Moscow to get PhDs in technical disciplines uh, in 1957. And, and so, uh, they've been pursuing nuclear weapons, not since the 1990s, not since the agreed framework in 94, but since the 1950s. Now, that said, an end of war declaration, you know, gives the political impetus to those who seek to change the dynamics on the, on the Korean Peninsula. And what I'm concerned about is how 
a withdrawal of U.S. forces will affect the security of the Republic of Korea. And I believe that uh, even though uh, North Korea does not have the capability to win a war against South Korea, even if the U.S. forces are not present or do not support South Korea, I believe South Korea will win a war. We don't want to see the that expenditure of blood and treasure. Uh, and the, the problem is that Kim Jong-un, uh, with his lack of experience and lack of military advisors, no one, only one general within his, his inner circle is a professional military officer. All of them are, are political officers. Uh, and so with his lack of experience, he may believe that he will have the correlation of forces to be able to win a war. And he could start it if he believes that he can do it when U.S. forces are off the peninsula or when he is faced with no other option. Uh, he can believe that he has to execute his campaign plan to unify the peninsula to ensure security or the survival of the Kim family regime. So that is why I'm concerned about the, this push towards an end of war declaration. And, and ironically, uh, again, the, you know, the proponents have said, well, there's nothing to worry about because it's not legally binding. You know, it's only symbolic. And then you have to ask yourself, you know, why would Kim Jong-un want to agree to that? The last thing is that the proponents are basing their their desires on a false assumption. And that false assumption is that ending, uh, you know, having a symbolic end of the Korean War will bring Kim Jong-un to the negotiating table. And unfortunately, giving any kind of concession to Kim Jong-un will will not cause him to change his behavior and act like a, a responsible member of the international community. It will cause him to double down on his political warfare strategy and his blackmail diplomacy because he will assess that it works. Uh, and so it will not achieve the effect uh, that the proponents desire. And again, in the end, that will put the security of, of the Republic of Korea at risk and it will harm a U.S. national interest, which is prevention of war on the Korean Peninsula, because a war on the Korean Peninsula will have global effects, and we want to prevent that. Thank you very much for that answer. Uh, very quick follow-up. So you mentioned, we, we just spoke about the end of war declaration. I wanted to ask about another common term we hear when it comes to relations between North Korea, South Korea, and the United States, and that is the term denuclearization. On paper, it seems like we tend to agree on the need for denuclearization, but there also seems like there might be some daylight between the different parties on what exactly denuclearization means. Can you talk about the U.S. definition of denuclearization and the North Korean definition of denuclearization and how they might be different? Well, yes. Uh, and of course, uh, in, in 2018, President Moon and, and Kim Jong-un, and in, in June of 2018, President Trump and Kim Jong-un, uh, in their statements, agreed to the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Actually, we mean the denuclearization of North Korea, uh, because as everyone knows, there are no nuclear weapons in South Korea. Uh, in fact, in 1992, there was the North-South Agreement on Denuclearization, an agreement to, to not have nuclear weapons, and the United States unilaterally withdrew the tactical nuclear weapons uh, that were present on the Korean Peninsula, and withdrew them with no uh, no negotiation, no, you know, reciprocity from the North to halt its nuclear program, which we knew existed at the time. And so, uh, so the South is, in effect, denuclearized. But we agreed to the term of denuclearization of the entire Korean Peninsula uh, because we thought, well, South Korea is already denuclearized. All we have to do is denuclearize North Korea. But Kim Jong-un doesn't look at it that way. Uh, Kim Jong-un looks at denuclearization of the peninsula uh, and I've already described this, and, and I'll say it in a different way. He believes that in order to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula, the U.S. troops must be removed. Why is that? Because U.S. troops bring access to nuclear weapons. We have brought strategic assets to the peninsula, which may or may not have uh, been nuclear capable, but he believes that they are nuclear capable. You know, he believes that almost all U.S. Uh, military assets, ships, submarines, and uh, strategic aircraft are all nuclear capable. And so what he wants to denuclearize, and he wants denuclearization to begin in South Korea. And so that means the withdrawal of U.S. troops. And again, the end of 
extended deterrence and the nuclear umbrella over South Korea and Japan. And so then, and only then, will he begin to denuclearize the North. And of course, for us, we want a complete declaration of all their nuclear facilities and capabilities, identifying all their sites, you know, from research and development through production, storage, you know, and launch capabilities. Uh, we want all of the, those facilities to be dismantled, completely dismantled, removed, uh, and all of the uh, existing weapons uh, rendered safe and removed from the Korean Peninsula. So we have two very different views of denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, and of course, the other thing is that, uh, you know, the Singapore agreement really led to Kim Jong-un's view that first we would like to build trust uh, or first reduce tensions, build trust, and then denuclearize. For the United States, it is really denuclearize, then we will build trust, uh, and then we will normalize relations. And so we have two opposing views of the negotiation process. Uh, now, the current administration, uh, I think, will be more flexible. Uh, they are talking about principled and practical negotiations. They are, you know, they stand firm, though, on full implementation of all UN Security Council resolutions, uh, which means sanctions remain in effect until compliance. But they are willing, I believe, based on their statements, that to negotiate an action-for-action process uh, where there is dismantling of Young Beyond and then certain waivers of sanctions for certain types of items, things like that, uh, but not a full uh, lifting of sanctions until the process is, is complete. Uh, and in effect, what President Biden is doing, you know, policies can be criticized, uh, but I think at root, he is really giving Kim Jong-un a chance to act as a responsible member of the international community, to negotiate. Uh, just as we negotiated with the Soviet Union and, uh, and we've negotiated with, you know, with many countries, uh, but even the Soviet Union negotiated in, you know, within international norms and standards during the Cold War. And President Biden is willing to give Kim Jong-un the chance to do that. And so, as they say, the ball is in his court. And uh, but as I said, we've really got two different views of denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And understanding Kim Jong-un's view is very important for our policy and strategy going forward. That's great. So, sir, I would like to pivot to the topic of the Kim Jong-un regime. In the news recently, there have been many concerns about his health, particularly since last year, and some can interpret his delegation of some of his duties as an indicator that there is internal concern as well. What sort of security concern does the sudden incapacitation or death of Kim Jong-un pose to the status quo on the Korean Peninsula? Great question. A lot to talk about and unpack from that. I, I will tell you that the, the, the question I ask of policymakers, of U.S. policymakers, you know, the short uh, answer in the form of my question uh, that we must be concerned with is to U.S. and South Korean policymakers, what will you do today if you learn that Kim Jong-un is dead, if you learn today that he is dead? And I, I ask it very specifically because we might not learn when he dies. We will only learn that he has died when, the, when that information is revealed. And so we may not know uh, when, in fact, he has, done, has died. In fact, because of COVID now, because of uh, we know from the past two deaths of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, uh, what the process is. They lock down the country, they bring their political leaders to Pyongyang, and they go through their succession process. Um, and the succession process, of course, is pre-designated. And there is no succession process in the Korean Workers' Party Charter or in their constitution. The, the succession is dynastic, and the leader chooses his successor. We don't know if Kim Jong-un has chosen his successor. He's 37 years old. Uh, I think he probably intends to, to live a long life. And, uh, and of course, choosing a successor uh, is problematic. Now, his grandfather chose Kim, Kim Jong-il in 1973 and made him the head of the organization guidance department, which is the most important organization inside North Korea, has all power for promotions and assignments and purges uh, within within North Korea, working directly for the leader. 
he, his sister, Kim Yo-jung, is on that committee. She is the vice director of the propaganda and agitation department with responsibility for building uh, and, and glorifying the regime and Kim Jong-un himself. And of course, she has been uniquely acting uh, in her own name, issuing a number of statements uh, since 2020 to include threats against South Korea, which is unusual. Uh, so it appears uh, that, that she has power that is unlike anyone has had before. Although it also is problematic that those who have been thought to have been number two in North Korea, those, those are usually purged after a while because Kim Jong-un or his father and grandfather before him do not want to have any competition. Uh, and recall that Kim Jong-un purged his own uncle, uh, Jung Sung-tek, who his father had designated as the uh, nominal regent to, uh, to help Kim Jong-un rule. And of course he killed him with a 14.5 millimeter machine gun, <laughs> anti-aircraft gun. And so, uh, uh, so it's dangerous to be number two. That said, Kim Yo-jung is his sister. And so it, it is likely that she enjoys more trust and a better position than, than anyone else might. Now, of course, North Korea is a patriarchy, a patriarchal society. People question whether a woman could rule. Um, I would say that given the nature of the regime, uh, that, that she could be the designated successor and the actions we are seeing are to legitimize her as a ruler, but most important for the rule of North Korea, it must come from what's called the Pektu bloodline. And Pektu-san, Pektu Mountain, is the, the, the tallest mountain in North Korea on the North Korean-Chinese border, which all Koreans look to, uh, north and south, as where Korea was born, part of the, the, the historical beginnings and, and the myths uh, surrounding uh, uh, Korean society. Uh, but of course, North Korea has twisted those uh, hit the history uh, and made it about the regime. And uh, and so the Kim family regime uh, comes from Mount Pektusan or Pektusan, and um, and they have used that. So the Pektu bloodline, I think, is more important than the patriarchal society. Uh, and so I think it is possible she could lead. Now we speculate about his health, and we have seen. Uh, you know, many assessment, uh, he's diabetic, obese, smokes too much, and, uh, you know, and has likely many, many other medical problems. And like his father uh, before him, you know, he has, we've had extended periods of not seeing him. And he, Kim Jong-un, we know, likes to go to Wonsan, where he grew up as a child, to his villas there. And of course, over the last two years, because of COVID, he has probably been more isolated than uh, than normal. But every time there's an extended absence of him from the, the from view, uh, the speculation rises that he's sick, getting an operation, and of course he you know the extreme rumors that he's on his deathbed. But you know he always seems to reappear. So all of that is just speculation. But that said, I go back to my first point, is that uh, you know even though he's always reappeared, you know one of these times. He may not. And so the question is, are we ready for that contingency? You know, have we wargamed out? What are we going to do? And I'm afraid what we're going to do, uh, once we learn he's dead, is what we've done in the past. And that's wait and see and see how the situation develops. And maybe, maybe we ought to have an alternative plan. Maybe we ought to engage with new leadership that, uh, that arises, uh, especially, you know, as we compete with China who will likely know something has happened inside Pyongyang before we do. Although our South Korean uh, allies may know as well. And if they know, uh, they will likely share that with us. Uh, so the bottom line is we need to be ready for any contingency. We don't know the status of Kim Jong-un's health. We've seen that he's lost a, a quite a bit of weight uh, in the last year. Uh, some speculate that his wife has tried to get him to quit smoking and to uh, take better care of himself. And maybe she has had a positive effect on him. But I think I would, the speculation I would make is that he wants to live a long time and maybe he is going to make the effort uh, from a health perspective uh, to do that. Well, it's great in your answer that you brought up COVID-19 because that's actually the topic of our next question. As we all know, North Korea was one of the first countries to institute a lockdown following the outbreak of COVID-19. Since then, the border lockdown has had 
and continues to have severe effects on North Korean economy and social cohesion. What sort of impact will the pandemic and North Korea's reaction to it have on the threat posed by North Korea? Yeah, this is a COVID is really a very interesting case. And, and of course, I think the regime is definitely afraid of COVID, uh, definitely afraid of an outbreak. And, you know, because their medical situation is and their medical capabilities are so poor uh, that uh, if there is an outbreak, it, it will it will devastate the population. We've seen reports uh, that they've built quarantine facilities, isolation facilities. You know, we've heard reports of large numbers of soldiers uh, with respiratory ailments. Uh, but of course, to this day, North Korea denies any COVID outbreak. And so they, as you have said, they've instituted what I call draconian population resources control measures. And this is the paradox of COVID for North Korea. On the one hand, it's deathly afraid of a COVID outbreak. On the other hand, COVID has provided the opportunity for the regime to really crack down and even further oppress the Korean people. And we need to make the comparison between the present and the arduous march of 1994 to 1996, the Great Famine, which during that time, the conditions may have caused up to as many as 3 million people to perish uh, from the conditions. And that was a very difficult time because the regime's public distribution system failed and people really had to fend for themselves. And it's important to understand the development of the resiliency mechanisms among the population that, that were established during that time. Since the public distribution system failed, uh, the people had to fend for themselves because no longer were food and, and, and other essentials delivered to workplaces. Uh, so what happened is that the people started developing markets and, uh, and the people that really excelled at this were the women, were the wives and mothers. And it is the wives and mothers in North Korea who are really responsible for the resiliency inside North Korea. And so they established these markets, black market and now gray market. And now there's as many as 400 actually semi-official authorized markets. Unfortunately, you know, they've, they've grown pretty, pretty well. A, a rise of a Dongju class, a moneyed class uh, of people and the use of foreign currency and of course information. Uh, and all of this uh, leads to a reduction of control by the regime. Uh, the use of foreign currency, dollars, euros, RMB, uh, 6.5 million smartphones now operate within North Korea, uh, which are critical for, you know, pricing information and for shipping and, you know, movement of goods. And of course, with COVID, it provided the perfect opportunity to do what you already said, shut down the border to not only legal trade with China, which is the lifeline, but also smuggling, you know, which is another major avenue of, of goods coming into North Korea. And so, of course, they've instituted shoot-to-kill orders on the border uh, for people going either way across the border. And they started cracking down, trying to uh, take away foreign currency, stopping movement of people, and, uh, and cracking down on information. You know, we see the reports that are just being released uh, that, you know, a 14-year-old student who watched a South Korean video uh, or a teenage student was sentenced to 14 years hard labor. You know, so there people are being executed for watching uh, videos from the outside world and the like. So all of this, they have used COVID to crack down on the people. Now, the problem with this is, and, and one of the things I'm most concerned about, again, in the famine of 94 to 96, they had they developed markets to deal with this. They also, the regime survived though because of the sunshine policy. Kim Dae-jung in 1997, you know, his theory was that if they provided aid to North Korea, it would change their behavior. And so from 97 to 2002 was a sunshine policy. From 2002 to 2007 was the peace and prosperity policy by President No Myung-hoon. And of course, President No's chief of staff was Moon Jae-in. And uh, so as you said, we've seen sunshine policy 2.0 because Moon Jae-in believed uh, that sunshine policy you know, should be implemented. Uh, of course, the problem is now there can't be a sunshine policy, a real sunshine policy, because 
During that time, South Korea transferred hundreds of millions of dollars to North Korea, uh, including half a billion dollars just for the meeting between Kim Dae-jung and Kim Jong-un, uh, which of course won Kim Dae-jung the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, but that was really based on a bribe. Uh, so there's not gonna be that transfer of funds to help the regime. And because of the crackdown on markets, the people do not have the safety valve that, uh, that they developed for the last two decades uh, since the arduous march. And so all of that together really provides a situation and the conditions that could lead to internal instability, unrest, in particular, if the military is affected. And if the, the Kim family regime cannot provide for the military, for the entire military, we're gonna start seeing a competition for resources. We already see the military you know, siphoning off resources from the population. There's a parasitical relationship there. But you know that well is running dry because the people uh, can hardly hardly take care of themselves, and so the military you know you can't get uh, you know blood from a stone, and so uh, so we could see real problems, and that's what I I really worry about uh, because of COVID, uh, and of course the other thing is that uh, people will blame sanctions, they'll blame COVID, and uh, for the suffering, we should remember that Kim Jong Un is making hundreds of millions of dollars in illicit activities around the world. Uh, not only his cyber attacks that are, that are global, but the global drug trafficking, countering of, counterfeiting of cigarettes, counterfeiting of medicines, uh, the use of slave labor. Uh, he is raking in hundreds of millions of dollars and he could use this to take care of the people, but he refuses to take care of the people. He has refused offers of vaccines from COVAX, from South Korea, even from the United States and from China and Russia as well. He's refused all of that help. And so when we talk about the Korean people suffering, uh, we need to keep in mind that the responsibility for their suffering is not from our sanctions, you know, not from COVID. It is the deliberate decisions that are made by Kim Jong-un. And the deliberate decision is for him to prioritize development of nuclear weapons, development of his missile capabilities, support to the military and support to the elite versus the welfare of the Korean people. So given your affiliation with HRNK, it would be remiss if we did not discuss human rights today. Can you talk about the intersection between human rights and North Korean security concerns? How can one issue help us better understand the other? Yes, uh, of course, in 2014, the United Nations conducted the UN Commission of Inquiry. Uh, Justice Kirby from Australia, you know, led a, a study. And of course, they determined that human rights abuses and actually crimes against humanity being conducted inside North Korea on a scale we haven't seen since World War II. I mean, the, the human rights situation is just abysmal, is, is probably too kind of word. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible situation. We have to understand, and, and I believe that human rights is not only a moral imperative, it is a national security issue. And one of the reasons is, is because Kim Jong-un must deny the human rights of the Korean people in order to survive. Dr. Jung Pak, who's now the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia Pacific, formerly of Brookings, formerly of the CIA, she often asks the question, who does Kim Jong-un fear the most, the United States or the Korean people in the North? And the answer is, it is the Korean people in the North, in particular when they are armed with information the people pose an existential threat uh, to the regime. And so Kim Jong-un has to oppress the population. And of course, the system that they put in place that Kim Il-sung designed called Songbun, uh, which is the social classification system, 51 classes of society, three broad classes of the elite or the loyal class, the wavering class, and then the disloyal class, you know, that determines your stature in life. Uh, but it's designed to control the population and it oppresses the population. And so this is really a, um, I mean, it's, it's a terrible, terrible system. Uh, so human rights inside North Korea are, are just a, a tragic situation. Now, the people inside North Korea, and, and as difficult as this for us to understand because we have enjoyed freedom, we understand freedom, they really don't have a good grasp uh, the fact that their human rights are being denied. In fact, their constitution uh, calls for freedom of speech, freedom of religion, you know, all of the freedoms 
You know, ironically, North Korea, they named themselves, they gave themselves all the great names for a government. They're democratic, you know, they're the peoples and they're a republic, you know, so they've, they've embraced all those uh, uh, names in the name of propaganda. But the people believe and that, uh, that they have rights and those rights are given to them by the Kim family regime. Just a quick anecdote, a young woman escaped from North Korea and before COVID, we, we met with her. She came on her first visit to the United States. And, uh, and she told us that when she was in North Korea, she believed she was free. Uh, she worshiped Kim Jong-un. She did everything she was supposed to until her family got in trouble and they were gonna be sent to the gulag. And so they escaped. And she said when she arrived in South Korea, that uh, she realized she did not know what freedom was her entire life. She had never seen it until she stood on the street uh, in Seoul and saw the Korean people in the South and how they lived, worked, played. Uh, and she realized she had no idea what freedom was. And uh, now she remained deathly afraid in South Korea because she was always on the lookout for U.S. soldiers because she had been taught that U.S. soldiers occupy South Korea, control South Korea, and would abuse Korean women at their whim. And so she, until she learned that there weren't U.S. military forces occupying Seoul, uh, that, uh, you know, she finally, you know, realized and, and learned that everything she learned inside North Korea was a lie. And when she came to the United States, she, she felt when she came to Washington, D.C., that she saw real freedom, uh, even, you know, and, you know, it was really heartwarming to hear that from somebody who grew up inside North Korea. But that illustrates, I think, the fact that, that human rights don't exist, but the people don't know they don't exist. And one of the things that we have a responsibility to do, and the UN Commission of Inquiry said this, is to provide information into North Korea. One of those human rights abuses is the isolation of the North and the prevention of outside information getting to the population. And so we have a responsibility to provide the truth about the outside world, the truth about human rights, uh, the truth about how people should be treated with dignity. Uh, and, and so we should have a comprehensive information influence campaign to get information into North Korea. And we know that that is a direct threat to Kim Jong-un because in 2020, Kim Yo-jong you know, threatened South Korea uh, because of the escapees or defectors who are trying to get information into North Korea with the balloons. Uh, they threatened South Korea. And South Korea reacted by passing a law on information going into North Korea and making it a crime. And Another example of appeasing North Korea and showing Kim Jong-un that his, his blackmail diplomacy uh, and political warfare strategies work. So one last point. We should not ever uh, sacrifice human rights for denuclearization. Uh, one of our colleagues on the board at HRNK, Ambassador Robert Joseph, he was one of the negotiators for, during uh, President Reagan's time with the Soviet Union. And he reminds us that even though we were negotiating START and, and SALT treaties with the Soviet Union, President Reagan never stopped talking about Soviet and Russian human rights. Remember, tear down this wall, uh, he said to Gorbachev. Uh, he, never, he never shied away from that. We should never shy away from talking about North Korean human rights. When we talk about the nuclear program inside North Korea, it legitimizes the regime. They use that for propaganda. The world is afraid of North Korea with nuclear weapons. But when we expose human rights, it's a threat to the regime. It undermines the legitimacy of the regime. He is fearful of that. And so uh, we, should, we should not use human rights as a negotiating, as a bargaining chip. We need to focus on human rights because it's the right thing to do. But we must recognize that it has practical application. Uh, and that practical application is ultimately for helping the Korean people, but it will undermine the, the, the regime. And But we should never use it as a bargaining chip, and we should never avoid talking about human rights in the naive, misguided hope that somehow that will please Kim Jong-un and he will agree to denuclearize. He will not denuclearize uh, unless uh, he believes he has no other option. And uh, he will not denuclearize because we don't call him out on human rights. So we need to focus on human rights and the Biden administration needs to take a human rights upfront approach. And I think Ambassador Thomas Greenfield's uh, statements at the, the UN yesterday, uh, as they exposed North Korean human rights, the UN Security Council, uh, I think that's an example that the Biden administration 
uh, plans to maintain a human rights upfront approach, though I will criticize the administration because they have not yet appointed an ambassador for North Korean human rights. And we haven't had one since Ambassador Robert King uh, when he left office in 2017. The previous administration violated the law by not appointing one. And the Biden administration needs to uh, uh, to get their, uh, get their ambassador in place to focus on this. Thank you very much, Colonel Maxwell. Here, we have one more question for you. With all of that in mind, everything that we've discussed today, from the nuclear issue to the human rights issue to the security issues, what do you believe is the appropriate U.S. policy towards North Korea? Well, I think that uh, it, it must rest on a foundation of deterrence and defense. Peace through strength is not uh, just a uh, buzz phrase. It really is uh, uh, important. And we must have a foundation of deterrence and defense. Our military alliance is, is really key, and we can't put that at risk because that provides the foundation for all negotiation and for dealing with North Korea. As John F. Kennedy said, uh, we should never negotiate from out of fear, but we should never fear to negotiate. I'm all for engaging North Korea. Uh, I'm for establishing liaison offices in Pyongyang and, and Washington. I am not for opening travel to North Korea uh, unless North Korea guarantees the safety of travelers to North Korea. Uh, they've shown that they will not do that and they will exploit our travelers. But I would like more and more engagement with uh, the Korean people in the North, of course. But I, I think our policy uh, should be to give Kim Jong-un the, the opportunity to negotiate and act as a responsible member of the, the international community. But I also think that he is not going to give up his nuclear weapons until he has no other option. And he has to feel the pressure. Uh, while we exert external pressure through sanctions and, and sanctions enforcement, it is really the internal pressure. Uh, it is going to be the elite that is going to have to to cause him to change and to make a decision to denuclearize. It may be a long shot. It may be uh, not accomplishable that they may not ever be able to develop that. And he will continue to operate, you know, out of uh, uh, with the single goal of survival of the regime and domination of the peninsula in order to survive. And as long as that continues, then we really have to focus on the long term end state or the acceptable, durable political arrangement. And, and that is, as I've said earlier, uh, unification. Uh, we're not going to see an end to the nuclear program or the human rights abuses and crimes against humanity until there is a secure, stable, non-nuclear peninsula in the north uh, that has a liberal constitutional form of government based on uh, freedom, individual liberty, free market economy, human rights, and the rule of law. Uh, and that would be a united Republic of Korea, you are okay or you rock. And so we need to focus on that. And ultimately, that is the solution to the Korea question, the unnatural division of the peninsula. And the ROC-US alliance has, has long said that peaceful unification is the desire. And I support peaceful unification. I think that the ROC should lead planning for peaceful unification. I think we should support that. And peaceful unification is the hardest to achieve. And it's also, though, unlikely that we will achieve peaceful unification because neither side will capitulate. Uh, that said, all of the planning for peaceful unification will be valuable and will be employed in any of the other paths to, to unification. And there are three other paths to unification besides peaceful unification. The worst case being war, uh, which will lead to unification because it will destroy the North Korean People's Army, uh, it will destroy the regime, and it will unfortunately destroy the infrastructure in North Korea. The second path is internal instability and regime collapse. Unfortunately, the conditions that lead to collapse could lead to the decision by Kim Jong-un to go to war. So we have two paths that are conflict-based. The third path and the outlier path is internal regime change. That is change to the regime from within, based on the internal political conditions, uh, based on the elite or what we call the second tier leadership, uh, those military leaders who decide that they can no longer live with the regime. Now, that's also a very long shot uh, because the entire system inside North Korea is designed to prevent that at all costs. Uh, however, if that does occur, 
uh, and new leadership emerges, and if we have conducted the right information uh, and influence activities campaign, that new leadership could emerge and seek peaceful unification. And in that case, we would already have the alliance plans for peaceful unification. So principle practical diplomacy based on a foundation of deterrence and defense, negotiate, give the opportunity to make the right decision, but plan for the long term. And the long term is the solution to the Korea question. And I'll stop there. Well, that's great. Thank you very much, Colonel Maxwell, for this uh, incredibly informative and extensive discussion we've had today. Uh, your expertise on this subject is really just unmatched in many areas. Again, thank you for being here with us, and we hope to have you again. Thank you. I'm happy to come back anytime. These are important topics, and uh, and uh, your questions were excellent, thoughtful, and, uh, and uh, I really appreciate the discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indo-Pacific Affairs. We hope you enjoyed the interview. You can engage with authors and others via our Twitter feed at journal underscore Indo. You can also interact with us on the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs Facebook and LinkedIn sites.